thank you guys for being with us this morning. I um, invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. Uh, this morning we're going to be picking up and continuing in our study of the book of James. Uh, but we'll be in James chapter 1 and we're going to be looking at verses 26 and 27. James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. As you turn there, I want to just bring up by way of reminder uh, that this is a letter that is written by the Apostle James. Uh, James was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, and he's writing this letter, he's writing this epistle uh, to a general audience. So it's just, uh, as James wrote this, uh, it was not written to a specific church, uh, but it was written in a way, and it was meant to be distributed uh, amongst a a lot of different churches, uh, all the different churches in the region, uh, and to be read there. And so um, James is writing these things, and his primary concern James's primary concern uh, is that his hearers, uh, those who would hear this word, uh, would be a people who have genuine faith in Christ, uh, faith that plays itself out uh, in good works that God has prepared for them to do. So uh, James is concerned that our actions right, are a reflection of what has taken place within our hearts uh, and in as the Christian life uh, is a life that is lived from the inside out. So our hearts that are shaped and changed by the gospel uh, play itself out in the works and the things that we do. And so uh, James is writing to make sure that we understand that genuine faith plays itself out uh, in righteous works before God. So this morning we're going to be in James 1, verses 26 through 27. I want to invite you, if you are able, if you would stand with me, as I read for us God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray for your Spirit's help. Lord, I pray uh, that as we receive these words written by the Apostle James, uh, Lord, words that are piercing, words that are convicting, Father, I pray uh, that you would help us not to be deceived, but, Father, that we would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to your word, that we would receive all that it has to say to us this morning. pray these things in your name. Amen. And you can be seated. It's not about religion. It's about faith. Well, maybe you've heard that saying before, or, or sayings that are like it. Sayings like this are very popular today. It's not about religion. It's about faith or it's about a relationship. Uh, These are very popular sayings today. But what in the world do they mean? You know, there are pastors and writers who write books about uh, faith being greater than religion. Uh, Religion is almost, this word religion is almost turned into a kind of a Christian cuss word uh, in a lot of ways today. But what do people mean when they say it's not about religion, it's about faith? Well, I think what they mean is 
they think that religion, in their eyes, this word religion, has to do with outward appearances, right? Outward actions. Whereas faith has to do with internal beliefs. So what they're saying is that uh, what a person believes matters more in the eyes of God than what that person does. So in other words, inward faith is more important than outward actions. And this is why there are so, so many people, even within this church perhaps, who think that as long as they believe the right things about God, the right things about Jesus, the right things about God's Word, that they are in God are good. But their lives may reflect a complete lack of any fruit of obedience to God's Word, what God commands them in the Scripture, and this doesn't bother them a bit, because, you know, me and God, we have this understanding. We're good. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, amen. Right? Amen. Of course, inward faith, what we believe, matters more in the eyes of God than what we do. After all, we are saved by faith and not by works. Well, brothers and sisters, I think this is exactly why we need the book of James. This is exactly why the book of James is so important for us today. Sometimes, sometimes, in our efforts to affirm the gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, which is a gospel we affirm, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, that is a gospel that we affirm. But sometimes in our efforts to affirm that gospel, we can fall off the other side of the horse. We're fooled into thinking that how we live doesn't matter as much in the eyes of God as what we say we believe. And that is a lie from Satan himself intended to deceive us into thinking that we have saving faith when, in fact, our faith may be worthless in the eyes of God. Now let's remember this letter was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And to understand uh, this, these two verses this morning, we have to understand them in their proper context. We need to remember what we heard last time uh, from, our study, uh, uh, from our study in the book of James, uh, particularly in verses 19 through 25. Right? And again, overall, James here is concerned with people who think they have genuine faith, but upon observing the fruit of their lives, they prove that in fact they are deceived. Now the basis of this, the basis of this is found back up in verses 19 through 21. Uh, look up at verses 19 through 21. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, James goes on to say in the next few verses that anyone who hears this word, this word that's to be implanted in our hearts, any person who hears this word but does not obey it is a person who is deceived in their faith. So it is possible for us to come to church every Sunday morning to listen to sermons just like this one, 
We can go to Sunday school. We can discuss the Word with our friends. We can read the Word every morning during our quiet times. We can even be a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher who teaches God's Word. But James says that if we are only hearers and not doers, that that Word has not been implanted in our hearts, and therefore our faith is not genuine. And that brings us up to these verses right here, verses 26 and 27. Now, those who have heard me preach before know that I like to give up front what I think is the main idea of the passage. This main idea is, is the thesis statement of the passage and hopefully is the thesis statement of the rest of this sermon. So here's, here's the main idea, what James is saying in these two verses just boiled down to one sentence. A person who receives the implanted word has a new heart that produces controlled speech, loving ministry, and a holy life. A person who receives the implanted word has a new heart that produces controlled speech, loving ministry, and a holy life. We've got two points in our sermon uh, this morning, and so if you're taking notes, point number one. First thing we see, point number one, the words you say are an accurate reflection of the genuineness of your faith. So the words you speak with your mouth are an accurate reflection of the genuineness of the faith that's in your heart. Now if you read through James's letter, it's just maybe five chapters long, right? If you read through James's letter, you're going to notice that James talks a lot about the tongue. He talks a lot about our speech and James is undoubtedly here picking up on Jesus' own words from Luke 6.45. So why is the tongue such a big important? Well, because Jesus spoke a lot about the tongue. Write down in your notes there, Luke 6.45. You can go back and read it later, but, but here Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus here draws a direct line from our tongue to our heart, right? And James is picking, he introduces this theme in, in verse 19, right? You read it earlier that everybody should be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And he's going to devote a lot of chapter 3 to this issue of the tongue, but here he, he picks up this issue of the tongue in verse 26, uh, and he lays out for us uh, that the words that come out of our mouth right, are an accurate reflection of what takes place in our heart. All that James says about the tongue in his book is kind of boiled down and condensed into this verse. Okay? And let's, let's look at the verse and see what, what James has to say here. Notice who it is that James is talking to, right? James is talking to those of us who profess with our mouth belief in Jesus, okay? He says, if any person thinks he is religious, right? So if you think you're religious, you say that you are a person who has faith in Christ. So James is talking to those of us who profess to believe in Jesus. He's talking to people who say that they are faithful, who think that they are faithful. Yet, we see again, just like we've been seeing all throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians, 
that Pastor Richard's been preaching through, that just because we think that we're saved, just because we confess that we are saved, that does not mean that we are not deceived. James here says that we are deceived if we do not bridle our tongues. We do not control our speech. Now James uses all kinds of illustrations throughout this short little letter to talk about the tongue. And every single one of these illustrations that James uses with reference to the tongue has to do with something small that controls something much, much larger. So the first illustration he uses has to do with a spark that ignites into a forest fire. The next illustration he uses has to do with a rudder, right? A little bitty rudder that will steer a gigantic ship and can change the course of a ship, but it's this small little thing. Well, here he uses the illustration of a bridle. I know there are those of you who are here who ride horses, who like to ride horses, and uh, but most of us will know uh, that a bridle is this contraption that goes over the horse's head. It has a bit that goes into the horse's mouth, and it has uh, reins that come back and go in the rider's hand. And the purpose of this bridle is to control the animal. So as you as the rider climb up on this massively powerful animal, you have got to have some kind of a way to control it. And that's what a bridle does, right? So uh, with that bridle, you can steer a horse, right? Uh, you can make him go to the right or to the left. You can make him go, but most importantly, you can make him stop so that you can get off alive, right? That's what a bridle does. Is it controls something that otherwise would be uncontrollable. Now, and James is, is using this picture to paint for us this picture of what it is to control our tongue, this tiny little part of our body, right, that can control the whole thing, that we are to bridle our tongue. He's saying here that we need to have self-controlled, or better yet, spirit-controlled speech. And if we do not have control over our speech, that James says here that, that our hearts are deceived. So it's a person who believes that he is religious, does not control his tongue, and he deceives himself. Our tongue confesses faith, but if we do not show the fruit of self-controlled or spirit-controlled speech, our tongue deceives our heart, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James goes on to say that the person who says he is religious but doesn't have controlled speech has a worthless religion. His religion is worthless. Now, this word worthless is sometimes translated in the Bible as futile. Um, in several times in the Bible, oftentimes this word is used with reference to idolatry, either to a false religion or to a false god itself. Okay, so I want to give you a couple examples of this. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, God is speaking through his prophet Jeremiah to his people, and he says to them, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness, and they became worthless? Here, God is 
through his prophet, condemning the people because they have left, they have abandoned faith in the true and living God, and they have, uh, they have gone after worthless idols, and they have become worthless. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 3, the prophet says that the customs of the people are vanity or worthless. It's the same word. It's translated vanity in, my, in the ESV, uh, but it's the exact same word, worthless. The customs of the people are worthless. Well, what customs is uh, Jeremiah talking about? Well, he says that uh, they will go up to a tree, and they will take an axe in their hand, and they will chop down that tree. And then they'll take and they'll cut part of that tree, and they'll slice it up, they'll chop it up into bitty, little bitty pieces, and they will throw it, and they will start a fire, right? And on that fire, they will warm themselves. They'll stand by that fire uh, that is fueled by the wood that they have chopped down by that tree, and they will say, ah, I'm warm. And then they'll get some food, and they'll put food on the fire, and they'll cook food for themselves, uh, and they'll eat, and they'll say, ah, I'm satisfied, I'm full. And then what they do is they go back to the tree, half of which they just burnt up in the fire, and they'll take a part of that tree and they'll begin to carve out for themselves an idol, a false god. And then they'll set that idol up, made out of the exact same wood that they just used to burn up in a fire, and they'll fall down and they'll worship this idol. Jeremiah says that their practices are worthless. That God that they carved with their own hand is worthless to them. Acts 14, 15. You can go and read this story. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are uh, in Lystra, and they go into the city, and uh, they, there is a man at the gate of the city who is lame. And they heal this man. Uh, Paul and Barnabas speak, and they heal this man of his lameness. And the entire city sees this man who was lame and how he has been healed, and they think, Right? They think the Apostle Paul, they begin to call Paul Barnabas. Um, they begin to call Paul uh, Zeus, and they call Barnabas Hermes, false gods in the Greek religion, right? in the Roman religion. They, they begin worshiping. They even bring animals and begin to sacrifice these animals to Paul and to Barnabas. And as they start to worship them, Paul says, Whoa, wait a minute. Flee from this worthlessness. He's talking about their idolatry there. One more. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter says that you were ransomed from the worthless ways inherited from your forefathers. Well, what are those worthless ways? It's idolatry. It's worshiping false gods. All right, so over and over and over again in Scripture, this word worthless is used, and this is just a few instances, there's more, where this, this word worthless is used with reference to idolatry, to worshiping idols. Well, brothers and sisters, hear me when I say this. If we are a people who do not control our speech, then we are no better off than those who worship false gods. You hear that? If we're a people who don't control our speech, then James is saying here, we are no better off than people who worship false gods. So how can we control our speech? How is this done? I'll talk just a couple of ways in which we can 
positively obey this verse here. Okay, First, uh, we need to heed, we need to listen to James' command to be slow to speak. James has already told us up in verse 19 that we, to be, we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now this, this is true all throughout the Bible. Uh, King Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, says in Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his, restrains his lips is prudent. And again, in Proverbs 29, uh, verse 20, Solomon says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words, who's quick to speak? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Right? We need to be uh, the type of people who are slow to speak. Now, we can say, we can overreact and say, well, I'm just going to not speak. Well, that's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible for you to go throughout your life and not speak. You just You can't do that. But we need to be slow. We need to be conscious of the words that we're going to say. We need to think before we speak. Now, when you find yourself in a situation and you feel the need to speak, especially if you're angry or if you're upset over an issue, we would do well to remember these words from James. Perhaps instead of speaking your mind, or worse yet, typing your mind out and posting it on Facebook, we should perhaps take time to pray. We need to ask God to help us to be conformed to his word and not to our feelings. Right? To let God's word be what comes out of our mouth and not our feelings. Right? So let's heed James's command to be slow to speak. Second, flee from gossip. Flee from gossip. Gossip comes in many forms. It uh, can even be disguised as prayer requests. Right? It comes in many forms, but most often it's done with the effect, the intended effect, that we are going to damage another person's reputation or character. Right? That's, that's why people gossip. It's why they do it. It's, it's to, to intentionally cause harm to another person's uh, reputation or character. But do you realize this? Do you realize that if you participate in gossip, that you not only damage the other person's reputation or character, but more than that, you are doing spiritual harm to yourself. You are causing more harm to yourself than the person uh, that you are gossiping about. James's words here are clear that if we don't control our tongues, that our faith is worthless. This is why in our church covenant, that to be a member of this church, part of the promises we make together are to flee gossip and divisive words because they dishonor God and they destroy Christian fellowship. Right? That's a promise that we've made to each other, those of us who are members of this church. So we are to flee from gossip. Lastly, I think there's a call here to examine yourself. Call to self-examination. What do your words tell you about your heart? It's a good question to ask yourself. What do your words tell you about your heart? Do you live up to the commands of Scripture with regards to your words? Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What do your words tell you about what's going on in your heart? As Christians, we need to be the kind of people that when, when folks leave our presence, 
they walk away having received grace from our words. Not condemnation, not tearing them down, right? But grace from our words. They need to walk away built up and encouraged in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So be honest with yourself. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Do you need to repent? Do you need to repent to your wife or to your husband or to your children or to a family member or to a neighbor or to a co-worker? May God give us grace to be the type of believers who use our words to give grace to all who see it. All right, so as we've seen here in verse 26, James has given us this negative mark of a person who is deceived into thinking they have genuine faith, but their actions show that their confession is not genuine. In verse 27, he gives us two positive marks of what a person with genuine faith does. Right? So that brings us to point two. Point number two. Genuine faith is demonstrated in a loving ministry and a holy life. Genuine faith is demonstrated in loving ministry and a holy life. Now, I don't know if you guys have experiences like this, but just about everywhere I go with my family, without fail, something like this happens. A stranger will see me and my wife and our four children sitting at a table or out and about, you know, pushing a grocery cart, whatever it might be, and they will come up to us and they will say something along these lines. There is no denying these are your children. I don't know if you guys experience that, but everywhere we go, without fail, someone makes the comment that our children, two of them look just like me, and two of them look just like their mother. And everywhere we go, without fail, someone makes that comment. It's great. It's a lot of fun. It doesn't annoy us. It's hilarious, and it's fun, and we wait for it uh, as we go out, right? Uh, And maybe it's just that my kids look extraordinarily like me, and two of my kids look extraordinarily like their mother, but everywhere we go, we get this. Well, it's not, kids look like their parents, right? They inherit physical traits of their parents, so they look like their parents. They also inherit our personality traits, right? And, And this can be a little bit scary, maybe even a little bit painful when it comes to our less flattering personality traits. Sometimes it, it can be like watching yourself grow up as a kid, right? <laughs> you, you, you see your child maybe throwing a temper tantrum or responding uh, in anger or something like that, and your immediate knee-jerk response is to respond to their anger with anger, right? And it's like, whoa, wait a second, I'm, doing, I'm just throwing a grown-up fit here, right? We see uh, our children take on uh, our physical traits, but they also take on our personality traits. Well, this is no less true of Christians. It's no less true of Christians with their Heavenly Father. A person who has genuine saving faith more and more and more begins to take on the personality traits of their Heavenly Father. This is called the process of sanctification, right? Where the Holy Spirit begins to shape our hearts and root out our sin and make us look more and more like Christ. Well, James brings that out in verse 27. Right? Uh, in verse 26, he describes a person who does not bridle their tongue. In 27, he speaks positively, positively to what genuine faith looks like on the outside. Not just on the inside, but on the outside as well. 
Well, what does it look like when a person receives that implanted word that he talks about back in verse 21? What does that look like? Well, here he answers in verse 27. Look down at verse 27. He says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, your heavenly Father, is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained by the world. So two things. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Well, why does James focus on these two things? Is, are these two things all that the Bible commands us to do? No, of course not. Of course not. The Scripture talks about all different kinds of things that we are to do, right? Uh, but the reason why James focuses on these two things is because these two things are things that the Scripture points us back to the character of God. They reflect what our Heavenly Father is like. And therefore, as our Heavenly Father's children, reflect what we ought to be like. Right? Because our Father is this way. So let's take these in reverse order. Let's, let's start with keeping oneself unstained by the world. How does that reflect God? Well, well God is holy. We serve a holy God. He is not involved in the sin that we see all around us. And we are to be like Him. Now God commands this. Leviticus 11.44, God says to His people, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. Right? So just as we can say of God that He is not characterized by the sin that we see around us, nor should we as His believers, as His children, be characterized by that sin. Just because our culture and the world around us accepts something as right and good, that does not mean that we as people who have received God's implanted word, who are children of the true and living God, ought to accept those things as good or right. As genuine believers in Christ and as children of our Heavenly Father, we do not take our cues from those around us we take our cues from God's Word, which has been implanted in our hearts. That Word that is able to save our souls. This is what we looked at God's prophet Jeremiah. This is what Jeremiah means when he's giving this prophecy about this new uh, covenant that is to come. And he says, I will write my words, not on tablets of stone, but I'll write my words on their hearts. And they will know me. And they will obey me. It's what it is to be a new covenant person. Right? To have that law written on our heart. To be holy as our heavenly father is holy. And we don't do this perfectly. Right? I heard Charles Spurgeon. I read uh, one time that he said, right, I can't stand on the surface of the sun, but I can stand in the, in the sun's light. I can feel its warmth. Right? We're, we're not going to be able to be holy just like God is holy this side of eternity, right? But we can stand in the light, right? We can obey God's word. So we are to be holy as God is holy. The second thing, to care for orphans and widows. Now, now why does God, or why does James say this? Why, why uh, is, is religion that's not worth this? Why is it caring for orphans and for widows? Well, James is picking up on uh, something that's all throughout the Old Testament. 
right? Widows and orphans are categorized together. And in the Old Testament, almost every single time, sojourners are a part of that group. So widows, orphans, and sojourners are immigrants. Uh, They are all categorized as this group. And, and, And they're categorized together. God commands his people to care for them because they are people who cannot help themselves. They are dependent on those who are around them. So according to Psalm 68, verse 5, God is the father of the fatherless and the defender of the widow. God is a father to the orphan. He is a defender of the widow. These are individuals in society that need other people. They need their help. And God cares for them. God cares for them. He sees their affliction and he cares for them. James reminds us that it's not only God who should care for them, so God's children should care for them as well. As Christians, we should be those who care for orphans and for widows. There should be no one in this church, in this community of, of faith, of believers, who is without a father or who does not have a man or men who are willing to involve themselves and to stand up and to defend them. As we've had, and as we have the means to do that, and the means to do that more and more, there should be no one in this community. Right? We should be the type of people who care for widows and for orphans, for people who cannot care for themselves. Now these realities are particularly precious to us as Christians. And you know why? Because we know what it's like to feel helpless. We know what it's like to be helpless in our sin. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are struggling with an addiction or a sin that you cannot conquer in your own power. Perhaps you're struggling like the person in verse 26, right? You're struggling to control your tongue and you have done everything that you know to do in your own strength and you just cannot do it. You feel helpless in your sin. All Christians, we all know what that is. But if that's you this morning, there is good news for you. There is good news for you. Jesus lived a perfect life for you that you can never live in your own strength, no matter how hard you try. And he died on the cross to take away your guilt and your sin, and he rose from the dead to give you new life in him. So don't remain lost and helpless in your sin. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ and repent of that sin and find new life in him. I want to close this morning with this. I want to close and, and let's just take a moment to examine our lives. Are you a person who treasures the Bible? Are you a person who confesses to believe the Bible, who confesses to believe that implanted word? Well, if you're not, if you're not, then you may not be the kind of person who perseveres right, in these things because James teaches us that it's the one who perseveres in these things, that's the person who has received God's word with meekness. Are you obeying God's word this morning? Perhaps you're even a student of the Bible. 
You could pass a theology test, no problem. But yet you don't obey. You may be deceiving yourself. Now I don't say that as a person who hates theology. Those of you who know me well know that I love theology. But I can say it as a person who has lived in this place of self-deception. Right? Giving myself to the study of God's Word, to the hearing of God's Word, but neglecting to do it. Are you bridling your tongue this morning? Are you reaching out and caring for those who have need? Are you keeping yourself in holiness? Well, if not, then your life may not be reflecting the character and the heart of the God whom you claim to worship. Now, as you examine yourself, I want you to examine yourself with this thought in mind. If you do all these things perfectly, you, that does not mean that you are right with God. Right? If you do all these things, that still won't make you right with God. The only thing, the only thing that makes us right with God is faith in His Son who lived for us, who died for us, who rose again on the third day so that we might have life. Right? God demands perfect holiness, but none of us can ever do enough to be perfectly holy in our own strength. I'm asking those of us who profess genuine faith in Christ, are we deceiving ourselves and are we failing to see our lives shaped and altered and conformed to the Word of God? Well, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived but repent this morning and show that you have humbly received God's implanted word even today. Let's pray. Father God, there are passages in the scripture that we read and we can walk away uh, encouraged and uplifted. And there are passages of scripture that are just downright challenging. And Father, these, these two verses, though they are short, God, they are challenging to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we examine our hearts, as we examine our hearts in light of your word, Father, I pray that we would respond in faith. Lord, that we would respond in faith, the genuine faith that leads to obedience. And Lord, I, I pray that we would not look to the works of our hands, that we wouldn't look to our own self-righteousness for, for affirmation or for comfort, Lord, that we wouldn't, uh, wouldn't just look to the uh, beliefs that we think or the things that we confess with our mouth, but Father, I pray that you would give us each faith that leads to obedience, hearts that are changed by the gospel, Lord, hearts that are conformed to your word, that have your word stamped on them. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this process of sanctification, Lord, that you would convict us of sin that where we need conviction. Lord, help us to repent in areas that we need to repent. Father, I pray that we would take our own self-righteousness, that we would take our own works, that we would nail those things to the cross of Christ, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. Help us to obey, Father. We cannot do it apart from your help. Help us to obey. We pray these things in your name. Amen.